any questions from Luke chapter 1 through 2 or this morning? Okay. Any questions in general? Burning things you gotta gotta ask. Okay. Then we move to hopefully finish. We'll see. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. By the way, I gave out my handouts last week. I didn't get any back. I hope everyone has one, because I don't have any more. Who needs a copy of this? You, one, two. Uh, does anyone have one they haven't written on? Well, you can have one that's written on. That's fine, too. You can just, just handwriting is legible. Um, Alex, would you be so kind? I need mine, but yeah. And my handwriting is definitely not legible. I definitely would not characterize my handwriting as legible. Would you, Serena? No. Okay. Okay, while Alex does that, seriously, any, any questions or anything um, so that I, we can wait till everyone has a copy before we jump into this? Or I can just try to tell more jokes. You sure you don't have a question now, Alyssa? Okay. Okay. Okay, Alyssa, yeah. Mm -hmm. That'd be good. Alyssa's doing family Bible. Did I say Bible-y? Family Bible reading, and they came across a passage in Romans. She's looking it up right now. <laughs> the chicken and the egg controversy. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be exciting for all those people who are downloading online right now. This is just going to be exciting. Those poor people. Um, you should probably just start when I get to your question. Go on, Alyssa. What you got? <laughs> Romans 7. That's probably one of the most difficult verses I've encountered in Paul. I'm not ready to answer that, so we'll just move on. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll show I'll show you it. I'll show you it. Um, if you want to see it, it's it's one I've often been puzzled over. Yeah, yeah. Romans seven, seven, seven. There you go. Um, I know the various I know the various potential answers people throw out. I just haven't studied enough to know what I think the right one is. But it's admittedly really a challenge. Okay. Romans seven seven. Paul is teaching by means of rhetorical question. What then shall we say? The law is sin? By no means. And in the flow of his argument, what he's just taught is that just as a woman married to a man um, is, is an adulteress, if while she's married she tries to marry somebody else, but if her husband dies, she's free to remarry. In the same way, while we were joined to the law, we had to die to the law so that we could be joined to Christ. That's, that's the argument of verses 1 through um, 
6. We can just see it, see, pick it up in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then Paul, after teaching this, is anticipating some pushback. The first of which is, Paul, if, 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 if we had to die to the law, does that mean the law is bad? And of course, the Old Testament has just full of declarations of the law's goodness. I mean, go read Psalm 119, 183 verses praising God's law. And so Paul says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's a great law. It's a righteous law. The problem's me. You tell a kid, you know, don't do something, and that's now the new thing they want to do. And so he says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the law commandment, produced all kind of covetousness in me. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Is that your question? Apart from the law, sin lies dead? Okay. Um, it's actually the next verse that I find the most challenging. I was once alive apart from the law. Yeah, I don't have Foggy said, you have what to do with that one. Um, I, got, I know the theories. I think your question's easier, though. Dead, I just think, means like powerless, impotent. Without commandments to inflame desire, without, without commandments saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, it's not stirring up. So I don't think it's dead as in non-existent. I think it just means sin is sin's lying still. Without the commandments, without the conscience, without God's law, sin is not being stirred up and activated as it is when it's there. And he's just saying sin lies dead. Now, when he goes on to say, I was once alive apart from the law, in the context of Paul's discussion in Romans 7 and 8, I want to think alive means spiritually alive. And theologically, I just have no idea how to make sense of that. So some people, some people argue there that Paul is sort of personifying man, and he's speaking of the encounter in, in, in Genesis 3. It seems a bit of a stretch. At least it accounts for us once alive apart from the law. Um, the other answer is he alive in the sense that he thought he was alive. Some people think that's what he means. Like I, it wasn't until the law came that I realized that I was dead. It's basically, that's probably the best understanding when Paul says I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, I died. Is rather Paul saying, in my own experience, I viewed myself as alive until I encountered the law. And I was like, oh no, I'm dead. That's possible too, but I haven't worked through it enough to tell you what the right answer is, um, or what I think even the right answer is. So that is admittedly a tough passage, but very astute to observe it. Any, anyone want to weigh in before I move on? Romans 8, 7, um, 8 and 9. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, the law reveals sin. The law shows sin. What the law doesn't do is give you any power to fight it. Yes. Yes. Oh, no. It, more than, it does two things. It reveals sin, and it provokes it. In the same way that parents saying, whatever you do, don't do this. Now the kid's like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Don't step over that line. Whatever you do, don't clean your room. Yeah, you try to, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what Paul's that's what Paul's saying. Um, by the way, I think it's significant. Oh no, I, do I open that can of worms? Do I? Tripartite. He cites one of the Ten Commandments. Here's what he died to. I think that's a pretty powerful problem for the tripartite folk. Um, what I'm, what, sorry, Zeb and I have had a discussion going on about this for a while. But basically, when you deal with the Mosaic Law, there's two there's two possible approaches you can take in dealing with it. The, the classic, Reformed, and probably most common understanding. Um, it predates Thomas Aquinas, but Thomas Aquinas is the first guy who kind of lays it out and argues it, is that the Mosaic Law can rightly be broken into three categories. And, and it really, the three legitimate categories, you've got the civil law that's governing Israel as a nation, you've got the ceremonial law that governs Israel's cultic life, the sacrificial system, and you've got the moral law. And under this understanding of civil, ceremonial, and moral, um, when Israel ceased to be a nation, when the kingdom of God was taken from them and given to a nation bearing its fruits, that aspect of the law is no longer morally binding. You're not obligated to, we're not obligated to build parapets around our roof. Okay? We're not obligated to meter out the same punishments for crimes that the law prescribes. They're not bad punishments for crimes, but we're not obligated to, to do that. Um, and the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Christ once for all perfect sacrifice. And so we, we can learn from it, but we, we do not bring goats and turtle doves to church. But under the tripartite division, there is one part of the law that remains, and that is the moral law. And the moral law is understood to be summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so under this view, the Ten Commandments is the heart of the moral law, and the moral law is what continues on, and we as Christians still must obey the moral law in the law of Moses. My reading of the New the other way to take it, I don't, I don't agree with that. Plenty of good, godly, wonderful folks do. Not a big, it's not something we're getting a big fight about. But my reading of the New Testament is you break one part of the law, you break it all, and I don't see any any clear, remotely clear, as you're reading the laws, you're reading Deuteronomy, like, oh, now we're shifting to the moral section. You know, things are intertwined. So, you know, you don't, the commandments against sexual sin are right next to other commandments, but like mixing fabrics next to, you know, I mean, it's not some clear division, like, oh, now we're moving into the moral section. And so here then, under the tripartite view, the Ten Commandments is the center of the part of the law that for new covenant believing Christians, we are still under. To me, it is a devastating, devastating counter argument that when Paul wants to give an example of the law we died to, he quotes the, from the Ten Commandments, do not covet. That's precisely what I'm not under anymore. That's precisely what I was freed from. Um, was that, was that. So anyway, that was the observation. Yes. Oh. Okay. If, if. Okay. Okay. And if the, and if you can make that fit into likewise, we died to the law to mean we died to the penalties of the law. Well, good luck with that. That you know what I mean? No, I get it. I get it. Fair enough. Fair enough. That that view's got a strong tradition and a strong thing. I'm just saying he's not singling out the parts of the law that you'd want to think he'd single out. That's all. Anyway. Yes, Alyssa. Yes. I got to get you Carson on that, by the way, too, don't I? I still haven't done that. Okay, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that the, the whole the whole end of Romans seven is one of the more hotly disputed passages in the Bible. Who's the I? Is Paul speaking about his own firsthand experience? Is Paul speaking for all men generally? Is Paul speaking of Adam and Eve in the garden? That, that's the big debate, right? I mean, and then it even gets into the uh, that which I do, I don't want to. Who's that one? There's, there's just you know, I remember one of my Romans commentaries. There's at least forty pages going through various views and arguments. Um, no, it's tough. It's tough because, you know, as, as the Bible teaches, we come into this world sinful. We don't come into this world spiritually alive. And so Paul's, it looks as though on a surface level, Paul's painting this picture of alive. Sin stirs up. Sin overcomes me and I die. I'm dead. And that's, that's not an accurate understanding of what happens to each of us. And you could argue that's Adam's experience. Um, or you could argue that's Paul's self-awareness of his experience. That's how he experiences it. You know, he comes and he's all happy. Do, 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 do. And then he encounters the Torah as a young boy. And he reads what the Lord God requires of him. And he tries to do it. And now sin is actually riled up within him. And he sees his deadness. That's possible too. There might be some other option that you know I, I'm not aware of. But it's, it's admittedly tough stuff. Admittedly tough stuff. And since Gary taught through Romans, it'll probably be a while before I have to... Before I t- it won't be in Luke for a bit. So... And we, we I'll have to go back and check. I'll have to go back and check. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. If, if this, yeah, if this, yeah, if this meant that until you heard the law of God, you were spiritually alive and sin wasn't working within you and you weren't dead, then the worst thing we could do is go evangelize. Right? Leave them be. They're alive. Sin's dead. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't tell them about the commandments of God. And certainly that's no. And and you got to be willing to punt. I mean, one of the things I like about these Sunday morning things is, please don't think I've got everything figured out. Um, and so I hope I, I can just say, yeah, I need to do some more work on that when we get back to you. Yeah. Um, please, please don't think I've got everything figured out. Greg's got everything figured out, but I certainly don't have everything figured out. And <laughs> you should ask Greg. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Carol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that it, with enough study and enough prayer and enough counsel from wise people, this is not understandable. I'm saying no one understands this. I'm just saying this. This is one of the harder things to track, and you really would have to go back and track Paul's arguments of the whole book and figure stuff out and. And, and, and there are guys who, who think they've figured it out. They may well have. I'm, I'm just acknowledging my own weakness. Not, please don't walk away thinking like, man, you can't understand the Bible because Jeremy can't understand it. No, that's not the right conclusion. The right conclusion is, man, Jeremy's a sinner like me. And he, yeah, that's the right understanding, okay? So please don't be discouraged from studying the Bible. I'm just acknowledging my own limitations and frailty. 
What did I do with verse 17 after that? So it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the thing I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, so you went to the real issue. The re- this is the real. This is the real can of worms. I do have an opinion on this one. I'm ready for this one, Alyssa. Br- bring it. Um, come at me, bro. Okay. Okay. Um, this is uh, admittedly one of the more hotly debated passages um, of the Bible. And I'll lay out the two major views, and then I'll lay out my view, which is not quite fit perfectly into either of them. And I will admittedly say, my cement is still drying. It's not firmly solid. But after working through this a couple times, um, I've, I've, I did a research paper in college. I got a chance to read a lot of, interact with a lot of commentaries and stuff on this very thing. So here's the question. Is Paul, in this section where Paul identifies, I do what I don't want to do and I, what I want to do, I don't do and all that stuff. Is Paul, the debate is usually put this way. Is Paul speaking as himself, a mature, faithful, fighting sin Christian? Is that what Paul's speaking as? Is it, are we to understand Paul is giving the first-hand account of his own battle with sin daily, or is Paul speaking as an unbeliever? That, that's the question. Is Paul, is Paul simply demonstrating how futile it is? Because you've got to set the backdrop of eight. Because all the problems in eight, seven, get solved with eight. Because it ends in seven with verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is now, no law, therefore now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What's the solution to the problem in seven? The law of the Spirit. So the people that want to argue this is an unbeliever, they will cite things such as, This person is unable to obey, yet Paul says in Galatians 6, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so for the people that want to argue this is an unbeliever, that Paul's just showing you um, how, how... how, how hard it is an unbeliever to try to obey God. You need the Spirit. You need the Spirit. Paul's mainly just demonstrating our need of the Spirit to obey and that Paul is showing that. So that they will point to those types of things and say there's no way this Paul could be describing such an impotent, powerless, defeated Christian life when he speaks elsewhere, even in Romans. Look at, look at just a few verses in chapter 8. Um, at um, ooh, verse... 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul here is speaking about being able to put to death this tyrant at the end of seven. So that's one view, okay? Now the other view comes along and says, no, no, this is the mature Christian fighting. This is the view uh, John Piper, John MacArthur, um, and others take. Schreiner sort of sits in the fence. Schreiner's commentary, he just lays out literally 22 pages of views and then just says there's strong merit to both. <laughs> okay. And they point out, how can an unbeliever make statements like they delight in the law of God? How do you account for the motivation, the desire to obey? How do you account for all the conviction and all of that if this is a 
dead unbeliever. Okay. And, and then they, they argue, no, this may not be the consistent picture of the Christian life, but this is seasons. There are times the battle is this strong and you feel so powerless. And, yeah, okay. And, that, and so that's generally the two views. I think when Gary taught it, he went with MacArthur. I mean, he's in good company. MacArthur, Piper, uh, I don't know where Sproul and some of those guys take it, but that's, those are the two. But, but that's honestly, in the commentaries, it's like 50-50. Good guys are coming on both sides. Because there's, Piper probably does the best treatment. He spent, I think, four messages answering this question, laying out the arguments for both. And but Piper did like Romans in 260 messages or something like that. Um, but I appreciate it. You can go look it up online and listen to it. Okay, here's my, here's my spin on it. Here's my spin on it. Here's my answer. I don't know if the question of whether or not Paul is speaking as a believer or an unbeliever is wholly relevant. Um, I want to track whatever Paul's doing here. It's meant to give support to his rhetorical question in verse 13. Yes? You with me? So look, let's look at the flow of the chapter, just big picture. We're zooming back, looking at the big picture. He introduces in chapter 7 this notion of being set free or dying to the law so that we can be joined to Christ. And then Paul anticipates two objections. The first, is what you're saying then mean that the law is sinful? No, no, I'm not saying the law is sinful. Perish the thought, perish the thought. No, I'm sinful. The law exposed, the law excited sin in me. Okay, then Paul, verse 13. Are you then saying the law killed me? The law, the law kill me? Damn me? Is that what happened? Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. And then everything that follows is meant to back up that answer. Right? You with me? You tracking what I'm saying? So whatever's going on here is meant to explain how the law didn't kill me. That's not what happened. Okay? So, because of that, I have a hard time thinking the point is to show a Christian fighting sin because a Christian fighting sin doesn't do it by the law. So what am I going to learn about the law by staring at a mature Christian fighting sin? I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to learn about the law when I look at a mature Christian fighting sin. Especially when Paul goes in to show in chapter 8 that mature Christian fighting sin does so not by the law but by the power of the Spirit. I'm not saying I think Paul is saying this is an unbeliever. I'm just saying I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. We're going to now learn about the function of the law by me describing my daily battle with sin. I don't, I don't think that makes much sense. And I agree on the other side that, that some of these statements Paul makes, really, how could an unbeliever make them? Here's my suggestion, and we'll, we'll leave it at this. Um, I think Paul's simply showing what, what sanctification by law would look like. Let me, let me show you the, the limitations of the law. I think the big, because what's absent from seven is the spirit. And the spirit shows up in eight and becomes the solution to all these problems. And so maybe this, maybe this would be the best explanation. Have you ever had the experience where you were trying to obey God, but for whatever reason, it's not through prayer, it's not through relying on his word. It's, you're just trying to use your own self-discipline to do it. I think that would be a picture of what Paul is showing. Let me, let me show you guys, in other words, Paul is saying, what sanctification by law looks like. And sanctification by law is an exercise in futility. Because the law can tell you, go that way, go that way. Go, and it gives you no juice in your energy to go that way. And it just starts beating you over the head. Bad dog, bad dog. You know, and you're just sort of in absolute conflict and, and torn apart. I think Paul, and that to me would demonstrate the uses and the limitations of the law. That we're getting a picture here of sanctification by law. Sanctification by rules. 
Sanctification by um, prescriptions. Do this, 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 and this, and you'll be holy. And we see the futility, impotence, and powerlessness of it. So I don't know if the question of is he a Christian or unchristian is really in Paul's mind as much as, let me show you, let me demonstrate how the law didn't kill me, but the law, if you're trying to be sanctified by law, is just going to beat you up and, and torment you because you will want to do it and it will tell you what to do. And what it says to do is wonderful and great, and it gives you no ability to do it. And so you're left in this turmoil where, where yeah, I want to do this thing, but I'm getting pulled the other way. And, and, and I think that may well be the experience of Christians when they're not walking in the Spirit, when they're not relying on God's strength, when they're trying to live their life in their own strength. I know I've felt like I'm living in Romans 7 at times. So I don't think this is a mature, solid Christian fighting my faith. I do have a hard time squaring that with what Paul says in Galatians 6. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. And this guy isn't just struggling. This guy's losing in seven. He's powerless. I mean, there are statements that I have a hard time squaring with Galatians 6. Um, Verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law in my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It takes me captive I'm not winning. I'm, I'm captive. I'm in chains. I'm, I'm, I'm bound, right? So anyway, I'm not the final authority on this issue. But that's, that's my answer. That's my, I mean, you can push back or ask questions whatever you want, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think the whole question of believer and believer is kind of a moot. I don't think, whatever this is, it's about the law. And, that, and that's what every answer has got to factor back into. So I was going to talk to Piper and MacArthur as if they'd listen to me. But if I were to, I'd say, okay, how then... Does this help explain how the law didn't kill you? Or if I'm going to talk to the guy who says it's an unbeliever, how then does this explain how the law didn't kill you? Because it's all going back to answer the rhetorical question in 13. Um, anyway, questions on that? Yes, Natalie. I probably did. Okay. Okay. What does it mean that Zechariah and his wife, John the Baptist's parents, were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments? Um, let, me, let me start by coming out a little sideways. We generally do not use the word righteousness outside of religious circumstances, right? I mean, how often do you use that word not in the religious sphere? When's the last time you said righteousness? Okay. Um, in, in, in Greek and in Hebrew... Um, so the Greek, the diakaiosune, it's common word, and it can mean a lot of different things. And it's all context, 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 context. So David in the Psalms, I remember the first time I came across this, Lord, vindicate me according to my righteousness. But all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. What, are you, what earth are you saying, David? Right? Um, the word means just. It really, in Paul's, in Romans, and, and here's where context matters. In Romans, Paul has, has made it clear he's looking at righteousness before God's law court in view of our sin. Okay? In Romans, as you read through Romans, Paul is, God is angry. God's wrath is revealed. And he's talking about the righteousness of God in Romans. And so in Romans, righteousness means one very, very specific thing. Being declared faultless and innocent before God's law court 
when judged for one's sin. And in that sense, Simeon is not righteous. Okay? In that context, he certainly is not righteous. However, Zechariah, sorry, Zechariah. No, but Simeon is also called righteous. I mean, a bunch of people in Luke 1 through 2 are called righteous and blameless. And Noah is called righteous. David, vindicate me according to my righteousness. But it simply has the notion of just, innocent. And so when David says, vindicate me according to my righteousness, vindicate, there's people falsely accusing me, David, saying, and I haven't done what they said I did. And as far as that goes, I'm innocent. Right? So because you vindicate me according to my justice, it's a just cause. David is not making a sweeping claim of universal galactic justice and innocence. He's simply saying, in the sphere of this dispute, in the sphere of what my enemies are saying I'm doing, I'm just. I'm innocent. So vindicate me. Um, and so in the sphere, I think, of like moral, everyday human beings, here are righteous people. Here are people who generally do what's right. I don't think Luke is looking up at the heavenly court of God and saying before God they're right and righteous. Mary is in this group, and she's bringing sin offerings. The very guy, the very guy who Luke said is righteous and blameless gets rebuked by Gabriel a few verses later. So Luke certainly does not mean sinless. I, I think he's using it in a generic sense, simply of these are people who are just. They do us right. They're, they're faithfully and obedient. And we learn they're believers in God's revelation in Scripture. But these righteous, just people are sinning, like Simeon does, Simeon, sorry, Zechariah does, when he doesn't believe the angel. So whatever Luke means, he certainly doesn't mean sinless, because a couple verses later, Simeon doesn't believe. Zechariah, good, get it straight, good night. Zechariah doesn't believe. He has a moment of doubt, and he gets disciplined for it. He's mute and deaf for nine months. Yes, Lee. Mm. Right. Yeah. According to the cultural, the culture and the law and all those things, they were following and keeping the rules. They were doing the things God called them to do, and you really couldn't fault them. Now, I think God could fault them because He knows their hearts. But we see through this thing: Mary and Joseph, they do the right. They do the right. Um, ceremonies. They do the circumcision on the eighth day. Mary brings the sin offering for her uncleanness on the fortieth day. They're 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 doing what God told them to do, basically. And and from an external point of view, you can't fault them. These these are these are folks who are faithful. Um, and I mean, the same language is used of an elder, not 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 reproachable. It doesn't mean sinless, but it means you can't you can't make a charge and it stick. Um, it certainly doesn't mean that Greg and I think we're sinless. It does, I hope, mean that, that no accusation of ongoing habitual unrepentant sin would stick. It certainly can be made, but it, the question might says unindictable. Elders must be above reproach. Literally, the Greek is not indictable. And so the question is, would the charge stick? Could it stick? And if the answer, so it's not a standard of sinlessness. It's a standard of consistent moral conduct so that somebody can't bring a charge um, of some sort of habitual pattern of sin that's not being dealt with and have it stick. And if you can, then, then the person's not qualified as an elder. So, so anyway, that's a long way around, but does that sort of make sense? So the, the point is, don't assume... Okay, let me, let me say one more thing on this because we've got 10 minutes. Words have semantic spheres of meaning, right? So when I say I love coffee and I say I love my wife, I don't mean exactly the same thing, 
Well, you hope I don't. Um, right? Fair enough? <laughs> what? <laughs> Depends on the day. <laughs> right? Um, but does that make sense? That the words have a semantic sphere of meaning. That words can be used in some situations to mean one thing and a little differently in another situation. And so righteousness, the, the, the diakaiosune word group in Greek, um, certainly can be used of a very specific, absolute legal righteousness before God. And Paul, by building the context throughout Romans, making it clear this is what he's talking about, that's what he means. And because Paul is where we get most of our justification theology from, where we get most of our understanding clearly unpacked, clearly parsing it apart of how the gospel actually works. That's the primary sense we think of righteousness. The gospel writers, the word can just mean, you know, he's a, he's, he's a faithful guy. He's righteous. Noah's righteous before God. Noah gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent, but he's a righteous guy. And so you learn, oh, apparently this word can also just mean a guy who's generally faithful, apparently. And that's, that's really, I think, all it is, is that the word group has a semantic range that in the right context, it can mean absolutely righteous before God in his courtroom, or before men, it can mean faithful. And I think it's just as simple as it just means they're faithful. And then he shows us their faithfulness and their faults, um, so that Mary falsely rebukes the Messiah, right? She scolds him. Why have you done this to us? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you frantically. Jesus doesn't like rebuke her, but he corrects her. He doesn't receive the rebuke. I have to be with my father's business, which is the rebuke, not the rebuke, the correction is, uh, Mom, did you forget who my dad really is? Because Mary says your father, and Jesus says my father, and they're talking about two different people. And so there is a certain amount of correctiveness in what Jesus says to his mother. Um, which is why it ends with Mary pondered all these things in her heart. <laughs> she's, she's got a lot to think about. Um, so, the, so even though they're declared and shown to be faithful, they're not, we don't have what's called a hagiography, which is just a whitewashing and making everyone look wonderful. You know, like, like when George Wash, I cannot tell a lie, and, you know, and, and the skipping the, the silver dollar across the Potomac and chopping down the cherry tree. Well, after our Revolutionary War, all these hagiographies came up that basically wanted to, like, make all of our Founding guys look absolutely spotless. They're good guys. I got no, I got no real beef with our founding fathers, but it's, it's traditional. Many cultures do this. If a king has a coup and takes over the other king, very quickly stories come up of how great he is. You know, the gospel writers aren't doing that. I mean, people, you just got to think this thing through. If you're trying to start a religion for power and money, it's a pretty bad idea to have your first pope deny Christ and be called Satan by Jesus. I mean, if that's what the disciples are trying to do, if, no, not that Peter was the first pope, but I mean, from people who claim this is just about power playing, controlling people, and getting their money, and this is just about controlling people. Okay, great. If that's what you're doing, do you really want to paint the leaders that the people themselves will be dealing with as ignoramuses, as betrayers, as cowards? I mean, Peter's scared of the servant girl and starts cursing and denying Jesus. That's not what you do when you're trying to start a cult. You write a book like Dianetics or something. You, know, um, you, don't, you don't impinge the character of your first leaders. And so, again, the Gospels have the hallmark of authenticity precisely because Mary scolds Jesus. We don't see in the Gospels the sinlessness of Mary. Mary brings a sin offering, implying she's a sinner. 
Mary makes a mistake and scolds the Messiah. See, when Mary scolds the Messiah, somebody's wrong. You got to say Jesus deserved the scolding or Mary's wrong for scolding him. But somebody's wrong here. There's no, there's no third option where we'll ever know. No, everyone's right. And um, I, I think we know the right answer is Jesus is sinless and Jesus doesn't receive the rebuke. Jesus corrects her. He does it respectfully. He doesn't, you know, who do you think you're talking to? I mean, but, but there is, there's some correction going on there. And so Luke is not trying to, to put rosy colored glasses on and make all of his main characters look perfect. So he calls them righteous, then he shows us their faults and shortcomings. So he clearly doesn't mean by righteous, sinless. I think he just means just, faithful. Um, what? They're good people. They're good, they're good folk. You know what I mean? Forget about it. Um, we have four minutes. Any, anything, we are really not going to get to this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing today. Any questions? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, it, yeah. The question was, um, so um, it's escaped me. Zechariah's wife's name is Elizabeth. That's right. Elizabeth um, was barren, and certainly the community would have thought that she was barren as a judgment for some sin or faithlessness on her part. Um, and yet we know, as Luke tells us, that's not the case. That's not the case. These are faithful people. And this gets back to my point from this morning, that being faithful doesn't mean you won't avoid suffering. Um, sometimes precisely because you're faithful, you will suffer. And God wanted to bring glory to himself, and so God did so by having an old barren woman give birth to a son. And she had no idea going through those years of barrenness why she was barren. It's not till the very end of the story that she finds out, oh, so that's what was going on. But Jesus' disciples had the same question, right? They saw the man born blind. Oh, teacher, who sinned? Was it his parents or him? Because if he's born blind, it's kind of hard to imagine. I mean, maybe he was cursing God in utero or something, but born blind, maybe we really can't figure this out. The parents did something bad, so God was punishing them with the blind boy, or did he do something in the womb? And who, who sins, the parents or the kid? Neither. It was so that the glory of God might be revealed. God can punish people for their sin physically. Just because someone's physically going through difficulty does not, the reverse does not automatically make something true. Just because somebody is, is blighted with something, disease or infertility or whatever, does not necessarily mean they have, they've done something wrong and being disciplined by God. It might mean that. It, it might, you know, I mean, we know from Psalm 32 that David speaks about the physical effects of, of God's judgment on him when he didn't confess his sin. My vitality wasted away. My bones ached. Every day your hand was heavy upon me. So, you know, we know that God can and does. And we know that the child of Bathsheba and, and, and David, D- David is killed because of David's sin. Um, so we know that there can be absolutely physical consequences for sin. But just because there are physical consequences doesn't mean there was sin. It's like saying, you know, we know dogs have tails, but just because something has a tail doesn't mean it's a dog. Right? You with me? Yeah. Yeah. So we don't want to re- reason backwards from that. So no, Miriam, I mean, think about it. Miriam, you think of the anguish and all of those prayers. And finally, as you know, a 60, 70, 80-year-old woman getting pregnant, oh, 
I am blessed. It wasn't that God doesn't love me. It wasn't that God forgot me. God had a better plan. This is the thing I try to remember, and I try to encourage people with, and I know it can sound hollow, but if God isn't giving you what you want, and you're being faithful, it's because he's got something better for you. You know? If God isn't giving you what you want, and you're being, now maybe he's not giving what you want, because he is actually disciplining, because he disciplines all those who receives his son, and you're being unfaithful, and that's why. But if you're being faithful, and, and you're asking God, am I out of line here? Is there something in my life you want me to fix? I'm trying to please you, and trying to pursue you. Spirit's not bringing anything to mind. Then if God isn't giving you what you're seeking, it's because he's got something better for you. So, um, yeah. I can tell you stories, but I, we're out of time, so I won't, but. Anyway, um, next week, we'll really try to finish this baptismal experiment thing. I promise you. Okay, keep your extra copies. We've got extra copies, so I'll hit the ground running next week, um, and we'll go from there. God bless. Have a good afternoon. <laughs>